This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. okay. So the loonies are outside in the real world, and here we are with the keys to the loony bin, boys. <laughs> you might actually want to be grateful, and you're about to make some decent money. What's the catch? Patricia Willard scandal, 1984. I want you to try to remember what happened 24 years ago. Use your imagination. The shrinks figured that with these new techniques they designed, they could release hidden memories. You can hear me. You okay? I want to go home. I wouldn't tell anybody about this. If they find out about Hank, they're going to find out about the others. We don't the others. Congratulations, folks. You have hereby been accepted to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You, formerly known as 21 Jump Scare. I'm Eric Winnick. And I'm Bradford Lorick. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because one of us is going back to school, as it were, to learn something new, and this loon will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet. As assigned by a true horror aficionado, or for the purposes of this show, your professor of pain, your teacher of trauma, me. Making me your freshman of fear, coming to you, I should add, from day five of COVID quarantine. So if I sound funky, it's because I am funky. You so funky. And we wish you a speedy recovery, sir. Joining us today, all the way from San Francisco, California, to discuss the 2001 asbestos abatement thriller Session 9, is a very special guest, our new friend, Jason Ragusta. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. So for those who do not know, Jason is a horror writer, director, and illustrator who's written and directed multiple short films, including Boy in the Dark and ztv sympathy for the devil he is also the writer and illustrator of ztv undead empire a graphic novel expansion of his ztv universe jason we know you have something very special out at the moment uh would you mind telling us a little bit about it yeah it's called symphony a clubhouse horror anthology um and it's a collection of nine short films that kind of push the limits and flip a few things on its head and it's available on Amazon and uh, Apple TV and Vudu and wherever uh, all the major digital outlets currently. Um, and it's also enjoying a rather uh, 
good run as far as I hear in the Middle East in theaters, which is pretty cool. By Middle East, you're talking about places like Saudi Arabia? Um, I don't know the specifics other than I know it came out in Pakistan. Um, yeah, so it's pretty cool. Uh, and there it got just released like, you know, Black Adam or like Pray for the Devil. It's kind of cool. It got like a bigger release than here. So, And Jason, as the first official horror director to come on Scary You, I wanted to ask you a quick question. When you were working on your section of Symphony, which is called Mother Love, which I enjoyed very much. Oh, thank you. Sure. Did you know you had something scary on your hands or are you really just so mired in the details of what you're doing that you're really just kind of hoping it comes out scary, you know, at the end in the edit phase? I've always wanted to ask a director that question. Well, so what's interesting about it is um, when, when it comes to scares and horror, you have to craft them. So I wrote it one way and made sure that we covered it in a way where we could build up to it and dial it in in the edit. And then I worked very carefully with my editor, Justin Amore, and our sound editor, uh, Nick Bazone, to really dial it in and make it work. And one of the most interesting things about the edit of Mother Love that did surprise me, that was kind of cool, is, you know, there's a shot in the beginning where we actually show the Ripper, the killer, down the hallway. He's at the end of the hall. And what's interesting is adding that shot and letting people know that there was a real danger in the house actually amplified all of the scares in it. Um, So before we put that in, um, it didn't work half as well. It's it's really interesting how uh, just being like, yeah, there's definitely something bad about to happen uh, really uh, made people freak out. So that worked out. So, Jason, uh, the first thing we like to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre? And do you have a favorite horror film? I seem to recall that you have a fondness for the film Cemetery Man, or as my best friend Brian and I like to call it, Cemetery Man. Yes, that's a good way to do it. Uh, you know, Ode to an Engineer, um, Delamore, Delamorte, whatever, whatever your taste may prefer. Um, yes, Cemetery Man is one of my favorites. I have too many favorite horror films. Uh, I grew up loving horror. Um, you know, my film Boy in the Dark um, is a fictionalized version of my youth. You know, I did actually a TEDx talk where I talked about my childhood of being this a very artistic and creative insomniac where I'd sit in the dark and monsters would come out of the darkness at me. And I had to make a make a deal with them where I would draw them and give them flesh so that they would protect me instead of scaring <laughs> the crap out of me every night. It worked too. I was no longer afraid of the dark after that because I had monsters protecting me. As far as my favorite horror films go, I'd say Nightbreed is definitely one of my top ones. Uh, I have a list, but I don't know if I could give you a list or not. But uh, us, Cemetery yeah. and Nightbreed. I mean, I'm so like, curious. Yeah. So Nightbreed, Hellraiser 2, Night of the Creeps, The Fog, The Devils. Cemetery Man, Mandy, Mayhem. And then my current favorites that I'm just obsessed with that I just keep watching over and over again are Watcher and Nope. Um, And then a special love for X and Pearl, of course. So first, let's discuss what this film is about. Mr. Winnick, will you give us one of your patented, brief, spoiler-free synopses, please? I would be 
so happy to do that. Time, the present. Location, Danvers, Massachusetts. Given the opportunity to clear asbestos from the long dormant Danvers State Hospital, a sprawling asylum for the insane, abatement specialist Gordon jumps at the chance, claiming in his bid that he and his crew can do the job in just one short week. Gordon brings on four guys from the North Shore, the dependable yet hot-headed Phil, would-be lawyer Mike, self-styled ladies' man Hank, and Gordon's nephew Jeff, who suffers from nyctophobia. Things seem to be moving along, but when Mike discovers the reel-to-reel tapes of a former patient named Mary Hobbs and becomes fascinated by her story, a larger tale begins to play out, one that shows startling parallels to the lives of the men shucking fiber in the hospital today. Shucking fiber. Excellent, sir. Uh, Thank now you. let's let's talk a little bit about who made this film and who's in this film. Yes. Uh, this film is directed by Brad Anderson, who may be best known for his debut, Next Stop Wonderland, also set in the Boston area. The Machinist, aka the movie for which Christian Bale lost 62 pounds, and The Call with Halle Berry. Uh, this was written by Anderson and Steven Jevedon, who also appears in this film as the character Mike. And along with Jevedon, the film also stars David Caruso, a.k.a. Lieutenant Horatio Kane on CSI Miami, and star of the maligned 1995 erotic noir Jade. Uh, it also stars Paul Guilfoyle, Josh Lucas, Peter Mullen, Brendan Sexton III, and of course, the great Larry Fessenden in the absolutely pivotal role of Craig McManus. <laughs> it is pivotal, though. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, it's an amazing scene. <laughs> the film I mean, it's, it's pivotal in the sense that he comes in, he pivots, and he's gone. <laughs> Well, it's so That's great because right. he brings such a different vibe to it for oh, like God. two minutes, you know. He does. <laughs> like, he does. I love Larry Fessenden. It's well, great to well, see him in that little tiny part. You know, there's like a section of the audience when it was watching this film, you know, when it came out that was just like thrilled with Larry Fessenden showed up. And like well, I mean, the rest look. of the audience is like, who is that guy? Now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. And stay tuned for a special feature in the end, which we're going to call Science Club. It's exciting. Session 9 had the misfortune to be released on August 10th, 2001, which was probably not a great time to drop a film that was anything less than comforting. Uh, it was made for the very modest budget of a million and a half dollars, which equates to about $2.7 million today, and it brought in a grand total of $378,176 in the U.S. and Canada, making Session 9 something of a box office disappointment. As for the critics, the film currently holds a 66% on Rotten Tomatoes. Dave Kerr of the New York Times, in a review hilariously titled... <laughs> 
getting more than they bargained for when they submitted the low bid, said the film, too artfully conceived to deliver many overt shocks, often feels long and aimless. And when it becomes clear that it is part of Mr. Anderson's strategy not to fill in the narrative holes or even clarify what one mysterious incident might have to do with another, the picture loses any sense of urgency or structure. That said, Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times opined, Brad Anderson's Session 9 is an ingeniously scary movie, the most effectively minimalist approach since the Blair Witch Project. That said, Variety's Robert Kohler stated, although aimed at restoring the psychological horror movie to full life after years of dormancy, Session 9 is little more than an overworked exercise in jostling red herrings, and not particularly fresh herrings at that. That said, Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly called the film, quote, a marvel of verite nightmare atmosphere. No, no, no. That said, Gleiberman went on to say... The story, a potpourri of fright devices, keeps undercutting the mood established by Anderson's intuitive camera eye. If Session 9 proves anything, it's that what today's audiences may have to fear more than the return of the repressed is the return of repressed horror film conventions. It is also worth noting that no matter what side of the debate you're on, this film did break new ground, and here we find ourselves in Science Club. Yes, according to Noel Murray of the AV Club, prior to Session 9, digital video had a reputation as persistently inferior to film. That began to change after Session 9. Compared to today's DV shot movies, the film now seems fairly crude, but the then cutting-edge 24p HD camera cinematographer Udo Bruschewitz used was able to approximate film in a way that looks similar to cheap, B-picture film stock. And for those unfamiliar with the terminology, 24p refers to a video format that operates at 24 frames per second, like a film camera. Actually, uh, as a digital format, it uh, operates at 23.976 and is sometimes rounded up to 23.98 frames per second. So there you go. A little education from Scare You. And now's our opportunity to Ask the Professor, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case and every case is you, Bradford Lorick. Thank you, sir. Tell us, why did you choose this particular film? I feel like it's a a smart, slow burn of a psychological horror film. I think it's one that gets better and richer in detail every time you see it um it's it's drenched with real atmosphere because it's set in a notoriously creepy place you know an abandoned insane asylum in new england about 20 minutes from where you grew up eric um i think it has a really unnerving score uh and and documentary sort of verite style cinematography um i think there's an ambiguity to the story that that leaves it wide open to interpretation. I think it, it features what is ostensibly the most sinister reel-to-reel player since Ash 
accidentally summon the evil dead. And I think that you have to pay attention to it um, with the sort of intersecting, overlapping timelines and all of the foreshadowing details. Um, and, and I also don't think that it features a single jump scare. To both of you, what what is your history with, with Anderson? I, I remember seeing Next Stop Wonderland when it came out, I believe at the the Angelica Film Center. I have not seen any of his other films. Um, now, have you seen The Machinist or The Call or Trans-Siberian or Beirut? I have not, strangely. I've always wanted to watch The Machinist, but I, 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 may, I may have even watched it a long time ago and forgot about it. But I, I actually, I think Session 9 may be my only film I've seen of Brad Anderson's other than his television work, uh, which is extensive. Jason, I'm so glad you said that because I was about to feel really guilty. Uh, <laughs> Session 9 is like my, my sole encounter with Anderson's film. Uh, I definitely fell asleep during The Machinist, but Session <laughs> 9 is, is basically it for me. Oh, Lord and Taylor. That sounds like the fire drill. Everyone, please leave the building, single file. Do not walk. Run. Run. Push each other out of the way. But should you survive and choose to listen further, and you have not seen the film, you have been warned. We are about to launch into a massive tranche of spoilers. Nice use of tranche, by the way. Thank it's you. a good tranche. Yep. It's a good tranche. I'm doing right. as best as I can. Okay. There it is. Oh, nicely done. <laughs> All right. Now that we've survived that atrocity, let's head directly to Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film. Or not. We'll be breaking this section up into two segments, honor roll, i.e. what did well, and detention, i.e. what didn't work quite as well. But before we get into it, I have to ask you both, Mr. Winnick, I know this was your first time seeing Session 9, and Jason, I know you had seen it before, uh, but just to establish where we are on the playing field, a basic yes or no response. Did you like this film? Jason? Yes. Eric? No. Get out of here. I'm very disappointed to hear that, Mr. Winnick. Sorry. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. On a roll first, round robin style. We'll each name the scenes or moments or aspects that worked well for us. And then we'll hand out detention slips signifying the moments or aspects that didn't work quite as well. Now, Jason, as our guest, would you like to go first? So I really like the history of the institution scene with Mike at lunch, uh, where he talks about the regressive memory therapy that failed and the whole satanic panic memories of the little girl that were false. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I actually found that to be more effective than the recordings, but we can get into that after. You know, I mean, I love a 1980s repressed memory satanic panic trope. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to ask you, you know, I sort of feel like in having rewatched this multiple times, you know, it feels like one of many sort of red herrings in the film, but it's one that I really love. Um, Eric, what about you? 
Yeah. Um, production design. Um, I mean, to the extent that they had to do any, it really, this film would not have half the power it does if it had been shot on a soundstage or set. Uh, apparently they were only able to shoot it in a small section of the building as the rest was condemned, but you know, whatever. I mean, Caruso said, I read an article with Caruso where he said it was a place you never got comfortable in. It wasn't like day three and we were throwing water balloons because it was so much fun to be there. It was always scary. And, and and you feel it. Yeah, I mean, Danvers is terrifying, right? I mean, the, you know, the graffiti and all of that decoupage on the walls, that was all real, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about production design, I mean, I think somebody's getting a lot of credit for not a lot of work, you know? The 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 sort of starting point is, is already lifting so much of the film. I wish I could say that the town of Danvers was as scary, but... Um, it's actually just, uh, you know, your basic North Shore suburban, you know, it's no Marblehead. Let's put it that way. Now, I, I'm going to ask a couple of, I, I have a question for both of you. Um, yeah. Jason, you grew up in Connecticut. Where in Connecticut? Um, so I was born, when I was born, I was living in Tolland. And then later on, I was living in South Windsor, Connecticut. Did you ever visit the Danvers Hospital? Um, so I never went to that one, but when I was going to school in Baltimore um, at the Maryland Institute College of Art, uh, my buddy Ryan Doan and I and a couple other friends, we actually, I, I don't know if I can say broke into, but we went to an abandoned uh, sane asylum. And it was the creepiest thing I'd ever done or been to. And and it, just being in a place like that is so terrifying. It's like one of those. And we did it at night, right? Like a lot of this stuff was during the day in the film. But man, one of those places at night, just the smell of the place, the things you find in it. There was a room that just had like limbs, you know, like plastic limbs piled up in this thing next to a furnace. Um, it was very suggestive. Like this is all just there. Like, like it's the way it is in the film. Like you go through and their pictures are still on the walls and their things are there. That that's one of the creepiest things about places like this. And, and they're really out there and you get a lot from that. And it definitely affects the actors and their performances, I would imagine. And Eric, what about you? You know, I knew you were going to ask me this question. Um, and I thought back and I thought back and I, I looked at it and I, Honestly, I cannot remember ever having been by or seen that place. I I have to let you down on that one. I mean, I don't think it's right next to the Danvers Mall or whatever, you know. It, but the li that's I, the Liberty I, Tree Mall. The Liberty Tree Mall. <laughs> I just imagine you kids from Mobblehead would be loading up with your natty bows or whatever you guys do and go trucking on over to Danvers at night, you know, to scare the shit out of each other. All right, what about you, sir? What do you have for the honor roll? Um, I like how the film begins. You know, it, it's got that first shot that's upside down and it sort of slowly rotates 180 degrees in the frame. And, it, you know, we're seeing the chair in the hallway and it's kind of instantly disorienting and it, it kind of tells us that we might not be able to, um, to trust what, what we will encounter herein, you know? Mm. Um, and the same is true with sound design from the very get-go, 
right? Um, we, we get those drips and electronic noises and like the splicing and glitching. And, you know, it's immediately setting up a, a, a very uneasy tone, um, you know, and it, yeah. it, like the music sounds like it's playing backwards and, you know, but I, I just think that the, the beginning of the film is, is sort of, really well done, you know, and, and the way that it's kind of front loaded with details that the town manager uh, is is imparting to Gordon and the team, you know, like exposition is kind of presented as as like necessary information, you know, it's like an introduction yeah. to Danvers for Gordon, that's like related to the work he and the team are going to undertake, you know, the and sort of explaining to us the the bat wing like architectural plan and the arrangement and orientation of the wards and the hydrotherapy room and the morgue and all of those things like it, it doesn't feel shoehorned in or or forced it feels like it's it's developing in a really natural way that completely uh off kilters us from the start let's go on to jason's second honor roll nominee Jason. yeah so like the way that Gordon casually pulls the ice pick out of Josh Lucas and just goes to town mm. on Fessenden. I love mm. that scene. I thought it was great. <laughs> and I do have a theory about it. I mean, it's interesting because there are different ways to interpret this film, but I get the sense that David Caruso was the one that actually put the pick in Josh Lucas. What uh, leads you to think that? So Caruso says to him several times, well, I wouldn't say anything about this because otherwise they're going to ask questions about the others. So it's almost yes. like he was on to Gordon and that he had like seen that he was doing this and he took the opportunity to go at Josh Lucas, who stole his girlfriend. Um, and then, of course, I think David Caruso at some point gets murdered, but we never see it. I guess I would throw the question back at you, which is who's experiencing the story? I mean, is it all in his head and who is he, right? I mean, is it all just happening for Gordon or are all of these guys having this experience together simultaneously? I mean, Gordon's kind of the final guy in this thing and, and seems to be very stab happy. So for me, I was getting the sense that Gordon was, you know, he's, he's unraveling the idea of him going, them going to clean the bestest out of this mental asylum, but then it infects him. And then there's this character of Simon that comes up in the recordings that's then overlaid with his final kill. And he's like, they always do, you know, they always let me do it. And there's that whole thing where it keeps saying, do it, Gordon, do it. You know, like, like Simon from the recording somehow telling him to murder. And then yeah, he's put all and of his photos up on the wall with the blood on them at the end where he's put him over the old photos from that patient. It's like a riddle. You know, I think one of the great things about this film, and I feel like a lot of critics were kind of split on this is how the characters are developed. You know, I, I think the details that we get, the cutaways to their sort of uniquely difficult private lives um it, it is kind of great but we also you know th they're developed in these kind of great ways that don't often happen 
in horror films where obviously character development is is sometimes not the filmmaker's most salient sort of goal right here they're individuated they they speak differently mike the intellectual of the group you know the law school dropout he um you know his his vernacular and vocabulary are so markedly different from the rest of the guys right and i think that kind of speaks to you know where, where you are going uh jason about you know um who who's experiencing this who's uh you know going through these um these sort of psychological changes uh over the course of the the week that they're spending what's the what's the phrase eric um shucking fiber shucking fiber right just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying i i think the acting is really solid they don't push the accents too hard, which is something that tends to be a problem in films set in and around Boston. Mullen is a fucking genius. I, I've never seen him turn into bad performance. He dials back his Scottish. He actually has a very thick Scottish accent. He dials it back nicely for this. And he seems to be underplaying a lot of the crazy, which is perfect for this film because you don't want him to come off too, you know, bonkers and give it all away. Gordon plays it like a man who's trying to outrun what he did. That's why it works. Mm. He's not trying to play mm -hmm. crazy. He's a guy who's running out of time. Uh, the whole yep. idea of doing it in a week, it's so he lives in his van and he doesn't have to go home and he gives him something to focus on because he's trying to hold his mind together. And of right. course it fails, you know. I mean, what what does he bring at the beginning, I guess? I, I'm, I'm going to throw that question out to both of you, right? I mean, because when we sort of meet him at the start, when he's inside Danvers, in the dark, we hear that voice call out to Gordon. You know, it's very deep and it's very low and we don't know what it is because we haven't heard Simon yet. You know, and, and he's he's looking down that corridor and the light's getting sucked away. Does he start this movie in a place where he's in sort of a, a fractured and fractious kind of mental place or is he driven there? Um, I think in the beginning he's he's repressed it like it's such a shocking, mm. horrific mm -hmm. thing that's happened that he's repressed it. And then what the film is, is showing the breaking down of the walls of that. That's right. And it, it the reality of what happened comes in like because at first he talks about hitting her but then of course yep. it was much more than that you know right right jason you know you're you're talking about the the incident with wendy and emma and gordon right right um and, and it is clearly set up from the beginning as something with his family he's he's distracted because of his family um yes. the new the new child or um him getting along with his wife it kind of steadily unravels right. But so, you know, Gordon kind of admits to Phil that he's hit Wendy, right? And he'd brought the flowers, yeah. which then come back and the champagne and, the, you know, he's he, he's celebrating getting the Danvers job when she scalds him with the boiling pasta water, right? You know, the way he describes it, he made it seem like she had thrown the water on him. When you listen to the recording of what happens, it seems like he went in to hug her or something and then the water spilled. Yeah, and it then, sounded like an accident to me, too. And then I guess that set him off or triggered him in some way. Um, that's, that, that's how I read it. It's never really explained. It's, it's interesting. The, the way that I kind of understood 
the events to happen the first time I saw the film. She's scalded him with boiling water. And I was sort of assuming that the that his hitting her was kind of a reflexive thing when he was scalded. Mm. But then we hear that playback and it's not, he's not hitting her, he's attacking her. And it sounds right. so much more violent than we've been led to believe all the way through. It, it, it sounds either like a vicious beating or a stabbing. Yeah, it sounds like he's murdering her like right away. And I guess yeah. the baby, I mean, it's pretty horrific. Yeah. But- but what is interesting with the story that Mike tells earlier on is do we even know that he killed his wife? Mm. You know, is the story about the little girl and the satanic panic supposed to give us a setup of like, we don't know what memories are real or not or what's happened or not, right? Like technically, what if he didn't kill his wife? What if he just killed all the men on his crew? Who knows? Right. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different yeah. ways to look at it. Mr. Lorick, do you have a, another nominee? Yeah, I, I guess um, something that I really like about the film is that the seeds that are planted early, all of the kind of foreshadowing, most of all of them really pay off in the end. There's the moment when they're having lunch and Jeff, Brendan Sexton, uh, has found a file that's related to like patient diagnoses back in 1889 or something. Um, And and he's reading out the, the diagnoses to the team while they're on lunch. And Jeff asks Mike, Uh, when he finds out that he's dropped out of law school or something, what are you due to lobotomy case? And Mike grabs him and mimes giving Jeff the lobotomy with the chopstick. And he's describing the process of performing one. And he, um, he suggests that the recommended treatment for the black eye that results from a lobotomy is sunglasses. Oh yeah. In that moment, the chopsticks are kind of like a pseudo Chekhov's gun and Hank is wearing sunglasses in that scene, yep. and he's the only person in the movie that wears them. So yep. I think that's a, a, a strong example of, um, you know, a, a, a seed that's planted that comes to fruition. And what's interesting uh, is that one pays off over the course of it because we see him with the sunglasses and we don't know what's going on with him. And then when they're removed at the end, we see exactly what's going on. So. Exactly. He's got that leucotomy sticking out of his eye, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing. Detention. After school. Both of you. You'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? Okay. So as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Again, Jason, as our guest, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you feel deserves detention? The film and how creepy it starts with that amazing sound design and this like this like spinning shot, you know, the 360 shot. I do feel like maybe the the film internally misleads the audience a little to expect something that won't happen later. Um, Mm. And so I think sometimes that can be a problem where if a film makes the expectations of the viewer be more then when they don't get that, whatever that thing is, they may 
turn on the film at the end, even though what they've done is is amazing, you know. Um, so I do feel like that could hurt the film in terms of like people don't know, are they walking into a ghost situation or like, you know, or is, is there going to be an insane person who's still living in the asylum or whatever it is? Um, and then I guess things like David Caruso's character just mysteriously disappearing, but then having conversations with him, but then being gone. I feel like, well, we never really got a, a resolution to that. I guess we can assume he got murdered unless I missed it. Do you guys know? Like, did you see him? I think it's it's implied pretty heavily that Gordon kills Phil. The Like the, the session nine tape is playing and I, I feel like it's kind of influencing a bunch of things. And we've got like those you know like the the pacing is really picking up in terms of like how it's being cut and we've got those like successive cutaways that that implies that gordon lobotomizes hank and phil is blaming him and questioning him about it and and then we've got that phil is so, saying gordy you're asleep wake up if they find out right. about hank they're going to find out about the others you know and then i feel like in that moment gordon kills phil I have a question, Bradford, that's so this was one of the things is, that's interesting. So the way that Brad Anderson wrote this, there's a lot of information that both lines up coincidentally or, you know, as red herrings like, you know, Josh Lucas's character is talking about how you have to have a backup plan and you have to do this. So when yep. strangely Caruso like grabs the phone, remember that, and he needs to be the one to talk to the person to amy yeah yeah and then set his ex by the way who he's right. got some serious issues with why would they ever let him talk directly to her i don't know but suddenly the story from him is that josh lucas's character has gone off to a casino somewhere randomly a casino school in miami <laughs> Yeah, which is like, what? And and so I guess my question, Bradford, is if Gordon is the one that did that, is David Caruso covering for him at that point? Or is he or did he do it? Or did he not make the call because he doesn't want to deal with his ex and he doesn't care about Hanks being gone? Do you understand what I'm saying, though? I'm saying that, like, Caruso fabricates his story or doesn't like how does that story exist if he's not lying in some way either to cover gordon or himself from right. taking out um and then is his surprise the fact that he's still running around did he think he was dead when they hear the footsteps we have the moment at the end when gordon discovers hank's body on the plastic on the ground but maybe he's still alive when he pulls the lobotomy out of his eye. Yeah. Right. I mean, a lobotomy isn't, um, you know, it, a lobotomy is not a guaranteed uh, way to dispatch with somebody. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I just, I feel like I, I, I don't know how to answer the question because it entirely depends upon your interpretation of everything else going on around it. Yeah. Well, also there's Gordon's reaction to Caruso's story. Where he's like, we didn't hear her say that, which was really weird. And then he's surprised to hear the footsteps. And what's interesting, too, is how 
vehemently he's opposed of them to call Amy as well. Right. Yes. So to me, I feel like either Caruso did Hankin or like, you know, lobotomized him himself or he's covering Gordon for some reason, because like maybe he wants to just get the job over and get the bonus and he could give him two shits about Hank. You know, he's like, fuck Hank. But what we do know is there is a reality up to the point when Fessenden is called in. Right. Which is before that part. It's the part where Hank has gone missing or they think he's left that they call in Fessenden. So we know up to that point, there's a certain level of reality. There's also the idea of the camera's point of view, because it spends time with other characters other than Gordon. So it's not just all in Gordon's head. Right. Like there are conversations between Mike and Jeff and Hank and Jeff. You know, there there are them being independent. Mike's off researching the stuff because his dad was the district attorney or whatever, the state's attorney. Um, state's attorney general, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. There's just a lot of really interesting pieces of information that are almost like these like like glacial plates that just kind of overlap a little and are shifting around. And, and yeah, this is kind of like a, a weird riddle or puzzle that needs to be solved, which I think is kind of cool and to its credit. Although for anybody that wants to watch a movie and have a satisfying conclusion where they understand it perfectly, this isn't their, their kind of movie. This is not for them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I am one of those people, unfortunately. I have, I have three things of increasing complexity. I'll start with the least complex thing. Um, this is just a 2001 thing that would not play well today. Um, Mike saying that Patricia Willard was admitted in 1970 by her parents for manic depression, which she calls, quote, typical adolescent crap. That, that's just that's not going to fly today. Can't say that. I'll quickly go to my number two here. This I think the sound design and the score do way too much heavy lifting here. There, there are whole scenes where the sound is just ramping up and ramping up and then nothing happens. It just feels to me like Anderson is way too reliant on both to ratchet up the tension of this film rather than using story elements along with the score. You know what's interesting about that, Eric, is I think it is that way for two reasons. One, they're turning a thriller or a drama into a horror film. Two, mm. um, it's the absence of what you're not seeing that it's indicating. Like when mm. David Caruso is getting killed off screen and we're not seeing it, you know, it's the uh, subtext between the things where all of these things are happening and we're not seeing it. And, you know, they can't show him kill Caruso because they need that scene where he's talking to him and then it's revealed that he's not there, you know? Um, Right. It's like an editing thing, but it it is interesting how the film works because usually you see characters do things on screen and that's how you get to know them and their repercussions and, and the story progresses. But here, it's an unraveling of, I guess, a lie or, or a fresh memory of what happened um, where it's all played in these recordings and the recordings are giving all this creepy stuff. Um, I have one more, but I'm going to throw it over to you guys. There are a lot of things that I love about this movie, but I think one thing that I'm, I'm not sure works or is successful, or maybe it's just the way that I'm interpreting it 
I'm going to say something that is probably going to make Eric roll his eyes, but um, this is something I say about a lot of the things that we have seen. Wait, are you going to say the word diegetic? I'm not going to say diegetic. I'm going to say the building is a character. Is a character. Mm. Right? And I mean, I think in this case, that character seems to maybe have agency, maybe? Is that character Simon? Well, is it? And and if that's the case, then what is Simon? Is Simon right. a, not an alternate personality, but a demonic force? Is it some kind of genius loci, some kind of like, you know, spirit of the space? Um, you know, I, I, I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to take away. And while I do love a lot of the ambiguity about the film, I'm not sure that that's something that exactly works for me. When we're hearing walkie-talkie conversations, right, we don't usually see who's initiating those conversations. We're just seeing the person hearing them and responding, right? right. So it, it kind of raises questions of whether they're being made by the characters we hear speaking, if they're being made at all, or if they're somehow being made by the creepy insane asylum. Is the timeline being shifted? Because you see a lot of that too. Like, are those things yes. being said then, or did they come from another time? Right. It does seem like one of Gordon's problems is keeping time straight as well. I'm. I don't know if. I guess maybe I'm giving a detention slip for like a needlessly entangled or or <laughs> un unravelable storyline. But I. I think a little bit more clarity in some of these directions would have helped shape the film a little bit more and made it ostensibly more digestible for, you know, the, the lion's share of the audience. Jason, I feel like some of the recordings and the audio work in this film didn't really work for me. The different voices that the woman did when she was her different personalities for me took me out of the movie a little. Even though what huh. they were talking about they was felt interesting, silly or yeah, like it just sounded like somebody was like pretending to do this voice. I didn't feel like it was another character. I'll just I'll finish with my point, which is I think dovetails with what you've been saying. How is Mary Hobbs's story connected to these guys? Anderson tries to make the connection by playing the tapes over shots of the other guys. Apparently. Session number nine was was the good one. But the thing is, is that it feels to me a little bit like forcing one narrative onto another. Um, and I, I understand that Gordon probably did a bad, bad thing. But if he is somehow possessed by one of Mary's personalities, Simon, which you would kind of get the impression of that when the head, their sort of heads align uh, the the photograph and and it's very purposeful. Gordon's head, yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't think Anderson establishes that well enough. Even with Simon's last line, "I live in the weak and the wounded," and I suppose you could say, that, "All right, you know, Anderson's not going to say it explicitly. He's just going to imply it, and we, as the audience, are going to fill in the rest." There is a place for that in films and horror films, but in my mind, this is. This is lazy storytelling. And I think that's the thing that really bothered me about this film was I just, I didn't, I don't think he connected the dots well enough. 
Well, you know what's interesting, Eric, is that, um, you know, personally, I didn't get that it was like an entity or, or like a demon or anything. I got that Simon was representative of that part of a person. Or, the, you know, you could say the devil on the shoulder or whatever that's like mm-hmm. kill, you know, or it's like when they snap. That's what I got from it. But you could make the argument that that whole recordings thing and everything else was come up. They could have come up with that in post. That may not have even existed yeah. in the yeah. original script. Um, and it may have been there to um, add that creepiness and that danger, you know, um, yeah, that was sure. missing. And you know, um, I, I spent a lot of this film waiting for these two storylines to line up. Okay. And I was like, there's, if they, if they pull this off, this is going to work really well. And to me, they sort of remained a little bit on parallel tracks. That's not the intention to make them line up. I think it's the disjunction between those things that Anderson is, is sort of clearly after. He does a very specific, though, superimposition shot where he makes he brings up the woman's face for the first time and then brings Gordon's face up into it. Mm-hmm. That seems very specific and very crafted and not random at all. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's right, yeah. drawing a comparison. But it's strange because Gordon doesn't really exhibit other personalities unless what they're saying is all those other guys that were there were his other personalities. But it's so funny you is, should mention it, Jay, because that did that that crossed my mind. But it but unravels the, fact, the whole it, film. Yeah. I, Which it, again, I mean, work. it sort of asks the question, like, what is the camera? What is its objectivity or subjectivity? What is what is our role? How are we supposed to interact with those things that we're seeing? So there is an argument to be made there that it is all in one mind from the beginning. The only mm. real issue, though, is this. If he's found at the end and he's in the asylum and he is an actual patient there. The, the only part that doesn't really work is like, how's he this guy that has this business with these guys? If the guard hadn't said at the beginning, I'm there to keep people from going back. And they're like, what kind of people? They're like, former patients are yeah. come back to the asylum. That's not a coincidence. No, it makes total sense. The only thing is he doesn't find his photos in there. He puts new ones up over the other ones, though. Right, right because he so makes was... a room. Out of, he, he makes mary's old room into his room right am i right about that okay i think so i got that right but did he ever even listen to the mary tapes though because it was mike that was listening to them that's right again again and again these stories line up yes i think it's all in his head if you step back from it or is the asylum in a way kind of like infecting gordon but he's already done everything before he's there is the problem Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's... Well, he had to have done it between going to put in the bid and getting the job, right? You mean like that's the reason he wants to do it so quickly? But he already no, seems I mean, out of it at the beginning. Exactly. Well, I mean, at the very beginning or the beginning of the job? Before they get it. Because remember, he begs for it and he tells him he's going to do it for a week. That, to me, says he's already done it. I'm going to give out a final detention slip before we move on. I think it's for the overt metaphor that comes 
that, that is sort of wrenched out of the exit strategy scene. We have Hank explaining to Jeff about how a fiber of asbestos takes root and grows in your lungs until you're drowning in this very insidious way. And I think that is the, you know, sum total of the explanation of how the building is metaphorically taking root in these guys until they're in over their heads. I mean, again, that that demands that you um, allow that each of these characters is a, a separate human being, uh, you know, in the world and not um, a, a fragment of Gordon's personality. But I did feel like that metaphor was a little hard wrought and a little heavy handed. Yeah. The further you go into the spiral of this film, the more each of them seems like just a piece of him. So weird. Good Lord. We could just keep going. So before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. Let's get some air into our lungs. Let's run around a bit, expend some energy, maybe have a snack or two. Uh, did you have a, uh, or do you have a favorite uh, recess snack, Jason? I do. Um, so back in it? the day, it was Lunchables or Polio string cheese. And to this day, I still mm. like to snack on string cheese. Nothing better than that. All right, let's take a break and then we'll come back for the superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, that speaks very highly of you. Well, he's very popular, and Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with, and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back. It's time now to hand out our superlatives. Those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dresser, and best smile. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserved to die. So to start us off, let's do the first award. The Gaspar Noe Award for most disturbing scene named for... <laughs> Gaspar Noe, I, I suppose. Uh, director of such... Uh delightful family fair as irreversible enter the void love 3d everything he does is just a a, a romp jason do you want to start us off do you have a gaspar noe award for most disturbing scene actually you know it's funny the most disturbing part for me was the part when jeff was making fun of mike and he started spitting up his food because he was like calling him i don't know if he was using the r word or like he was saying he's a lobotomy case or whatever you're saying but it was pretty not PC. It did not age well. <laughs> I will say that. Correct. You were disturbed so by that. It 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 was just like I I don't want to watch this. I, I don't. I could skip over this part. <laughs> that was the most I, disturbing I, thing in it for me. For me, uh, Gaspar Noe for this film. Something we are told rather than seen. Michael's story about the Patricia Willard scandal of 1984. Repressed memory therapy. Black robes group orgies, newborn babies, hearts being cut out, 
drinking blood, eating flesh, grandfather and father both fucking her repeatedly, fetuses being cooked, satanic ritual abuse syndrome. Yeah, sure, turns out she was a virgin, none of it happened, but boy, that's that's not a story that I enjoyed listening to. So that story gets my Gaspar Noe Award. Bradford? The most disturbing scene is a tie for um, Jeff's nyctophobic panic attack in mm. the basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as the if we put ourselves in the place of the character, as the lights are going off in that great scene when he's running down the hallway, I think that's a rather disturbing moment. But also, I would say that for me, it's tied with the recording of the fatal beating of Wendy by Mm. Gordon. Which brings us to the Ellen Ripley Award for character that most deserved to live, named for, of course, Sigourney Weaver's character, Ripley in the Alien Cinematic Universe. Mr. Lorick? God, I mean, that begs the question that we've been asking all night. Who is real and who is not? But I would guess if all things are real in this film, the character who most deserved to live is probably baby Emma. Wow. Okay. Um... I mean, that baby always has an earache. You know, it's just like Jack Torrance has always been the caretaker of the Overlook. Mm -hmm. Bradford, once again, going with an offstage character. um, (laughs) um, You know, I'm going to give it to uh, Jeff. You know, the the kids, he's just scared of the dark. He's trying to do a good job. He's got to die for that. I mean, Jason? Uh, I would give it to Mike. I, I liked Mike's character the most. He seemed pretty legit. Uh, I did not like Jeff, <laughs> as you could tell from my Gaspar No Award. Um, but but yeah, Mike, to me, seemed really interesting. He was trying to like investigate stuff. He was trying to get to the bottom of stuff, even though it went literally nowhere uh, outside of the experimental structure of the story. Right. Um, it was like he was trying to solve a mystery of something that wasn't a mystery, which almost is like if he is a piece of Gordon, you know, he's the part that was trying to escape the quicksand i guess and maybe uh have some kind of epiphany that would have saved him from total self-destruction but you know okay okay which brings us to the michael myers award for character that most deserved to die and does um i will start uh for this i'm going to give it to hank Expertly played uh, by Josh Lucas, uh, constantly rubbing in Phil's face that he is with uh, Phil's ex-girlfriend. Just a a wonderfully played asshole. Bradford. I'm going to give it to Phil. Oh, interesting. Phil's an underminer. He's always subverting Gordon. He's carrying on with the other crew members trying to mutiny i mean i i think it's all about knocking out that red-headed fucking albatross okay <laughs> jason for me it is a toss-up between those two characters but i think hank has driven caruso's character to be such an asshole um mm. like the fact that hank 
has no interest in Amy, but basically has sex with her just to torment Phil is pretty messed up. You it's know? pretty douchey. <laughs> this guy's he's a special kind of asshole, you know, that's at another level. Which brings us to the uh, next award, the Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment. Um, Ken Russell, of course, being the director of Bradford's favorite film of all time, Lair of the White Worm. Um, it's not his favorite film of all time. but However, we, we, Ken Russell's do... Salome's Last Dance is up there for me. Another it's classic. A classic. Uh, yeah, my favorites are Altered States and uh, and The Devils, for sure. Oh, you yeah, know what? We keep course, forgetting yeah. to mention the devils. Um, I usually bring up Tommy uh, Altered States, um, his D.H. Lawrence films, but you're right. Uh, the devils, we need to mention that one more often. That's a that's a great film. And technically, so, the devils is like the most Baroque of all of them as well, technically. Right? I would, I would agree, yes. Uh, so in this film, actually, I don't personally feel like there's enough baroque in this film i will say that anytime they go into the basement things get hairy i do like that that scene uh with jeff in the dark i think that's great i also think hank's uh escape after finding the coins the score is blaring there there are birds flapping uh he keeps running into this chain link fence but i think for sheer it's a very agnes of god moment but I think for sheer Ken Russellness, I got to go with the ending. Gordon finding all the bodies, including poor Hank with the ice pick in his eye. That whole ending feels very big and operatic to me, very Russell esque. You know, right. I would say that it's either the last moment of Gordon's steering wheel sleep dream fantasy when he's wearing his hazmat suit and we see him from the back and then all of a sudden we're looking at him from the front and he's either got red slime or blood all over the mask and all over the front of his hazmat suit. Or it's when, when Gordon pulls the leucotomy out of Hank's eye socket and his head follows and then falls back. That was a nice moment. Um, I like that. It's a great moment, and it's also the only CG in the entire film. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Jason? Yeah. So uh, I would say the most Baroque moment for me is the when he pulls the leucotomy thing out, and then part of it, but the biggest part of it is when he's restraining Fessenden and then stabs him to death, because it reminds me a lot of that priest restraining that nun when they're interrogating mm. her in the devils, mm -hmm. it's almost the yeah. same kind of energy and just kind of like nutty kind of feel to it. Um, it's such a surreal yeah. thing. Like the other thing that's funny too, about that scene is that Fessenden comes in and you don't really know if Hank's actually on the ground or not. Cause he's not entirely reacting the way a normal person would if they saw one of the guys they know That's or right. doesn't know doesn't wrapped in plastic well, with a leucotomy thing see in their him. eye. Does he see him right away? I'm not sure he sees him at all. Like he kind of looks down and maybe he sees something, but he doesn't react like someone would if they saw basically a murder victim at their feet. <laughs> That's true. And That's then he true. sees the guy pull the leucotomy thing out and then come after him. Like 
it's it's really odd like that's why it really does feel if you really boil this thing down to like it's 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 marrow they're all just pieces of him um and he's Ooh. just some maybe he is some insane person that's just gone back to the asylum and he's constructed this whole narrative in his mind of this job all right let's round it out with uh Perhaps my favorite award, the Brad Dourif Award for character who could have been played by Brad Dourif. Um, Brad Dourif, Drum of roll, course. please. Yeah, well, let's just say Brad Brad Dourif, we remember him best, of course. Well, he's still with us. I shouldn't say we remember him best. But uh, we, we enjoyed his performance in The Exorcist 3 as oh, James yeah. Veneman, a.k.a. the Gemini Killer. But he is also known for um, some wonderful performances in movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Wise Blood and, of course, Blue Velvet. Uh, so and, of course, as the voice Checky. of Chucky in Child's Play. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Thank you. One, oh, one sorry. thing. Also, my favorite with him is the Doc in Deadwood and uh, as the Harkonnen Mentat in Lynch's Dune. Oh, right, right. I forgot they did another Lynch film. Um, Jason, would you like to go first on this one? I would. I think he could have played a good Jeff. He also mm-hmm. could have played a good Gordon. Or maybe he'd be Larry Fessenden's character. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, know. Do you, I, you know, I tend to think that if we're going with big, big Brad Dourif, then... I'd say he's more Larry than Gordon, because I think the thing is about Mullen, he doesn't seem to be someone who's chewing scenery most of the time, you know, which is which is, I think, the the character that we're sort of looking for in this film. And Fessenden definitely comes in and definitely has he's on another level. You know, he's got a different vibe to him. Oh, yeah. So like the Brad Dourif question is such an interesting or award is such an interesting one, because as soon as you bring Brad in everything is elevated to that level right (laughs) like so you know it's like if he was any of those characters and suddenly this film's in another place (laughs) right everybody has to rise to that level bradford oh i think i would have liked to see him in the role of jeff Oh, that's interesting that you. That I you think say he that. would have made that uh, that anxiety attack in the basement into a, a, an aria of its own. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like a possession that's... level event. I would have been all in for Brad Dourif in the role of Jeff. Wow. All right. Well, you know what? I'm gonna veer from from you guys and go with the role of Bill Griggs. Oh, okay. Um, because I think Paul Guilfoyle is, <laughs> I don't know what's what's going on with that character, but the way he, when he get, brings them on the tour in the beginning of the film, he is dialing it up way higher than is necessary when he describes <laughs> the layout of the building. And he, he, does. he does that bat, he does that bat impression. And um, the subtitle I noticed on the screen is, imitates wings flapping squawks <laughs> like a bat so i'm giving bill griggs my brad Dourif award That's i mean i fair. think he would have also i think he would have also hit a fucking home run 
as any of the voices in the session recording audio oh, yeah. of the real cassettes. Oh, if they had made all him of them. the like all of them. Yeah, if they had just changed Mary to a guy or something and had him be the one, that would have been actually I think it would have improved the film. That's that's what he's doing in Exorcist Three, technically. Yeah. Even if they hadn't made him a guy, I think he still would have either way. Out of the park. Yeah. No, either way. <laughs> yeah, he could be Mary. That's fine. Uh, he could have even been the doctor too. It would have been amazing. Yeah, he could have played all the roles. All right, Brad. All right, boys. It. And with that, we have arrived at our final segment of the night: the final exam. This is the part of the pod where we give you our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about this film. Jason, as our guest, would you do the honors and go first? I would give it a B minus. Eric? C minus. I would give this an A minus. Wow. Yeah. All right. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you do, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends, have a listening party, bring some snacks, bring some polio string cheese, and hey, maybe even subscribe. And be sure to check out all 13 hours of season one, if you haven't already. I mean, who doesn't have 13 hours of free time? Be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareupod.com. That's scare, the letter U, and pod.com. And extra special thanks once again to our very special guest, Jason Ragusta. Uh, if people want to find you online, where can they do so? Um, I can be found under my name, just Jason Ragusta, on Instagram or the social platform formerly known as Twitter. And uh, <laughs> you can also find Symphony on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, and other digital, major digital platforms. Bradford, where can they find you, sir? Oh, they can find me at www.bradfordlorick.com. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd as EA Winnick or on Twitter as Ron underscore Decline. Our announcements were by Kay Kaiser and Sir Anthony Hopkins. Our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth, mixed by us into a sizzling soup of salaciousness. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time in the hallowed halls of the Internet's Institution of Insanity. I, I mean, higher learning scare you. Bye, everybody. Can you move? Ray, Ray, come in, please. I feel so funky. Spangler, I'm with Bankman. Oh.